Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our second episode of the three-part series on the 1978 police and firemen strike. In this episode, Bonnie talks with Sam Posey and Joe Lowry about the events in August of 1978. Let's listen in. Welcome back to Forgotten History. I'm your host, Bonnie Whitehouse, and in this second episode on the events of the summer of 1978, we pick up with a city left in ruin from the first strike. So the firemen had struck and Mayor Chandler and the city administration felt that they had avoided what could have been a much worse situation. Now, weeks after the strike, contract talks continued. On July 13th, Memphis Police Association President David Baker announced the city and the union had reached a tentative settlement that would be presented to the membership on the 15th for a vote. The fire union was surprised the policemen had reached a settlement so calmly and quickly and felt pressure to also wrap up their talks. After a session of all-night negotiations, the fire union members gathered the next morning to vote on a contract that had been formed with the help of mediators. The contract was essentially the same as the first one they had rejected, with a few tweaks. The problem with the contract, however, was that the city wanted the firemen to pay the city for damages that had happened during the strikes, and the firemen didn't think that that was fair. The vote, which was taken by a show of hands, was very close and ultimately inconclusive, so the fire union decided to postpone the vote and take some time to talk with union members about making this deal. Union leadership also knew there was a high possibility of another walkout if they voted no on this contract, and that a strike would probably cost the firefighters their jobs and the union, so why not wait? While they waited, the police union voted on their mediated contract. Theirs was also similar to the original contract, without the $30 per month raises and including better longevity pay and hospital insurance, as well as an extra holiday. For the police, the main sticking point was that most of the money promised to them in their contract came the next year, and they wanted their money now. David Baker told the union that a better deal was unlikely, but 90% of the Memphis Police Association voted no on the contract. The members wanted some sort of job action, but Baker warned them not to act unless the union approved. The plan going forward was for the police and fire unions to attend a city council meeting set for the 18th to express their discontent with how the city was handling their contracts and to get city council involved. But let's pause for a second. The unions wanted to express their discontent with how the city was handling negotiations. So what was really going on in these talks I keep mentioning? Well, this is actually the hardest part of the story to tell. All the contract negotiations were kept close to the public and reporters throughout the summer. The newspapers really tried to be part of the continuing negotiations so they could report their sides back to the readers, but the labor talks were kept closed despite claims that this was in violation of the Tennessee Open Meetings Law. I was lucky enough to talk with someone who was part of those meetings, and he told me a bit about what went on and who was involved with the talks. Here's Sam Posey, who was vice president of the fire union in 1978. We had uh, the mayor, and uh, we had some businessmen in there. We had some union officials in there. As far as the mayor, really, really, I mean, he was out to get us. First, they thought they was just going to do it, and, you know, they'd stomp us, and then it'd be over with. But it didn't act. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. The mayor was really determined, you know, 
to get one of us. By the way, when Sam says one of us here, he just means either the police or fire union. He thought that when when we, you know, were, were given what, what the little things that he gave us, he had us. And then he turned around and found out, hey, we went. And that just made him that much matter. Jerry had a similar idea about the mayor's stance. He, he, was, he was of the mind that come, excuse the language, hell or high water. I'm not giving in to him. There's no talking to him. And it wasn't just the unions that became frustrated with how the mayor handled these talks. The mayor, and I, I'll never forget this, the mayor was sitting in there and he was just raising all kinds of hell. And one of the businessmen, and he's still, still around, uh, he told him, he said, what in the hell is wrong with you? You sit down in that chair and you act like you got some knowledge of, as far as whatever and uh, act like you're supposed to do, be a mayor. And uh, after that, you know, he, he sit down in the chair. So it seems the union's insistence that the city wouldn't discuss in good faith had some merit. All right, let's get back to that city council meeting. This council meeting was very heated and included speeches from both union presidents and the mayor. Baker realized he had fewer and fewer options and that he had to lay his cards on the table. So he said that a 7.5% pay raise for the police officers on a one-year agreement would satisfactorily settle the dispute. The raise would only cost the city an additional $110,000 from the previous proposal. The city council said no to the offer from Baker of a one-year contract. They didn't really want to be involved in the situation. They felt that the contracts were fair and that any further raises beyond the original agreements would mean cutting or limiting other city services, which they did not recommend. They did, however, tell the city administration that they should review their labor negotiation practices and procedures for the next year. The Education Association of Memphis also joined in with the police and fire unions, and together they announced a petition for a recall election to get Chandler out of the office. All the labor people in town seemed to think he was trying to break unions in a very Crump-esque manner. At this point, both unions denied that any sort of job action was at hand, but this reassurance was not so comforting as the unions had less and less options available to them. And while the unions were working together against the city, they were also in competition, worried that the other group would get a better deal. To solve the problem the fire union had faced with getting their side of the story out to the public, David Baker challenged Chandler to a televised debate. This debate was called an unprecedented event in the history of labor negotiations, especially in Memphis, where labor talks had always been hushed. Getting the public back on their side was the police union's only way to get more power in the situation. So the debate was set for July 28th. During the debate, both sides shared their opinions on the matter, but brought no sign of a changed mind on either side. Chandler held firm to his two-year contract, and Baker contested that the city's offer was a sealed and unchangeable package made behind closed doors and in violation of the city's promise to bargain in good faith. Baker made a point, which ultimately would help the labor side, that the issue was not only the money promised in a contract, but the fact that the city would not work fairly with its employees. He also implied that the police union would have taken some job action much earlier if the executive board of the union was not so committed to finding a peaceful solution. By the end of the debate, nothing really had changed besides getting the public more involved with the situation and making them better equipped to form an opinion themselves. The fire union supported this debate as it would again reiterate their point about the stubborn city government. Since the talks were closed to the newspapers, as I said, the logistics of the public being informed really became an issue. Not only did the media, the only way for the public to learn about the issue unless they spoke to a striker, not know the whole story, what they did publish was skewed and simply untrue. 
I talked a bit in the last episode about the media inflating the idea that the firemen had gone wild and set the city ablaze. But let's hear more about how the union felt they were being represented and how the public felt about the strikers. The public was against us. They thought we were traitors. They thought we were fire bugs. Uh, The public opinion did not go for us. Uh, I blame the media for that. The media never helped us. The media sensationalized. They never told our story. They never did. Would the media people come to your picket lines and you would try to like talk to them about why you're striking and all these things and then they would just turn out they, some... I don't know about other places, but they, uh, I was at 13th on East Parkway. They did not come to us. They did not come to us. They didn't come to us. And this is what the police association attempted to avoid with their debate. After the debate, the mayor and the MPA began to exchange salary offers directly in hopes of a settlement. They hadn't returned to negotiations because the city had offered their final offer and insisted they weren't going to change anything. Chandler offered the MPA an opportunity to submit their own counterproposal, and they did on August 7th. This contract would only cost the city $121 per year per patrolman more and could have saved the city a lot of trouble. Mayor Chandler said this offer was unacceptable, and he offered his own two-year plan, which was a modified version of the original proposal, but included more money at the start and less money in total. He also said he would include a study to look into if the police were being paid fairly in the city and government structure of Memphis. The members of the police union were expected to vote on this contract on the 10th, and Chandler warned that if the police went on strike, the executive board of the union would immediately be fired. The MPA voted 2-1 to to reject the last city offer and had set up their own picket lines by midnight on August 10th. As soon as the mayor learned of the strike, he called another civil emergency and called more than 600 National Guards back to Memphis for the second time that summer. Wanting to avoid the bad publicity the firemen had received and knowing that keeping the public on their side was the only way to win anything in the strike, Baker issued a statement saying the strike would be very professional and he did not know how long it would last. Chandler instituted an earlier curfew than he had for the fire strikes, from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m., and he told the citizens not to worry. The city was covered. He felt he knew how to handle the situation this time. The firemen respected the police picket lines at their station, but were still able to work, unlike the clerks at the city courthouse who would not cross picket lines, causing city courts to be closed for a day. The night of August 12th was another point in the strikes where, like the fires in the first strike, things got out of hand. Strikers marched on the Mid-America Mall in downtown Memphis, but this was no peaceful march. Even if it started with intentions to be peaceful, the march got out of hand with fireworks and tear gas grenades. The non-striking supervisory and city personnel boarded themselves up in police headquarters and city hall with security guards carrying shotguns at the entrances to the unlit buildings. To an observer, it would look as if downtown Memphis was under siege. The mayor immediately got a temporary restraining order on the strikes, but the wording of the order was somewhat problematic. It ordered the police to end their strike by midnight, but didn't necessarily say that they had to go back to work. It definitely did say that there could be no more than three people at any picket line and that they could not block city facilities. Of course, Chandler interpreted it one way and the union the other. The way Chandler saw it, the police had to go back to work at midnight, and he said he would consider any policeman who had not returned to work by midnight on the 13th to have resigned. Baker told his union members to expect things to get rough after midnight when the city would authorize strikers to be arrested as they were no longer allowed to be on strike. While it did get rough, it wasn't only coming from the city. Police again turned violent, hurling rocks and bricks through the windows of the South Precinct building. Many of the strikers were armed without authorization, and more than 60 policemen were arrested that night. Of course, all this violence and rioting wasn't good press for the police. 
Less than 50% of police officers returned to work by the midnight deadline set by Chandler. Most, if not all, of the police officers who returned to work received threats to themselves and their families by striking officers who did not agree with the fact that they had returned to work. National Guard troops were sent to secure police precincts with working officers. And with all the commotion over the police strike, many seemed to forget that the firefighters had yet to ratify their contract. The sentiment among members was that they wanted to go out on strike again. By dawn on August 14th, the firefighters, who were still under a court injunction to work, went on a wildcat walkout after rejecting the city's last offer, the same offer that had led to the inconclusive vote on July 14th. As members of the fire union left the voting booths, many grabbed picket signs they had laid down six weeks earlier and gathered in the parking lot. The president of the union told them they would lose their jobs if they struck, but if they wanted to strike, they needed to act like gentlemen. For the first time in the history of Memphis, all of its public safety employees were walking picket lines. From Sam, I learned a bit more about why the fire union went out the second time. The second strike wasn't so much about getting a contractor better pay. They went out to save the police union and all unions in Memphis, again, realizing that this was bigger than themselves. We made the commitment to them that we was not going to go on, out on strike and, until they had as many days as we did when we went on strike. So after they got to that point, then we went out on strike. And really, the reason we did go out on strike was just to save them as far as their jobs. We got together and talked about it as far as us and said, well, we can't, we can't let them, you know, do this to the police. We took a vote and said, okay, uh, we're going to go out again mm -hmm. and we're going to try to save them. And that's really what we did. And I mean, we did, really. So the executive board put the vote up to their members. Vote was going on. And one of the firefighters jumped up on top of a van and said, we're on strike. And immediately the crowd was gone. And the police were there too. Helicopters were circling and everything. It know. was kind of scary. Next time, on Forgotten History, we pick up with a city left unprotected by their employees and hopefully an end to the labor problems of 1978.